You're now listening to episode 137 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate, accounting, and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hall and Tom Caselli joined here with Herschel Hamilton, the leading revitalization and commercial real estate developer in the Southeast United States. He is co-founder and chief strategic officer of Block Global Group. The company manages and develops complex real estate building projects and provides commercial real estate transaction advisory and investment services. In today's episode, we discuss outsourced or fee development services, revitalization and economic development, including tax incentives such as opportunity zones and funds, energy tax credits, historic tax credits, and how understanding the dynamics of your market is key to being a successful real estate investor and much more. Before we dive right into today's episode, we did want to remind everybody about our Tax Smart Real Estate Investor Facebook community. It's the one-stop shop for real estate investors to learn about tax strategies and stay up to date on all the tax law changes. With nearly 650 members and counting, there are a ton of conversations taking place right now. Join today by visiting www.facebook.com slash groups slash tax smart investors or by following the link in the show notes below or you could just search us on Facebook. I'm sure we'll pop right up. We're looking forward to seeing you in there. But for now, we're going to jump right into today's episode. Herschel, thanks so much for taking time to come on the show today. Would you be able to give our listeners a little information on your background? Great. Um, I certainly appreciate you guys having me on the show. Uh, it's a pleasure. A um, little bit about my background. I started my career as an investment banker doing public finance transactions. And that was really where I got my arms around financing big capital projects, essentially big real estate projects. You know, when you do public finance banking, essentially you're underwriting bond issues for municipalities that are financing convention centers, stadiums, you know, wastewater treatment plants. At the end of the day, all real estate related projects, you know, real estate and infrastructure related projects. And so uh, I did that for about a decade. And in 2003, my partner and I got together and formed our firm. Uh, My partner is an architect by profession. Uh, He doesn't design. He spent his career delivering projects on behalf of clients as a fee developer or program manager, project manager, owner's rep. You know, all those terms are subjective. You know, these days, they all mean the same thing. And so we pulled a company together and I brought my project finance background to the table. He brought his project delivery background to the table and we started in 2003 and been blowing and going ever since. Nice, nice. And one of the things that was brought to our attention when this episode was scheduled is that what really drew you to this podcast was our perspective on how you can build wealth and preserve right. your wealth through real estate. And would you be able to talk a little bit about the principles that allowed you to do that? Yeah. You know, so at the end of the day, when you look at real estate, you know, if it's investment properties that generate a cash flow, you're buying a series of cash flows. I mean, as you guys know, you know, your typical T-bar, you invest money and in the next several years, you're one, two, three, four, you operate the property so that it generates cash flow. And so essentially you're buying a series of cash flows and those cash flows increase over a period of time and create a value that's in excess of what you purchased the property for. And so it's a beautiful way to build value. And at the same time, a beautiful way to participate in the preservation of communities and the building of communities. 
And so for many people, they approach real estate, you know, primarily from a home ownership standpoint. And over the long term, you know, real estate typically appreciates, you know, the cycle, the economic cycle ebbs and flows. But over the long term, you typically get good appreciation of real estate. So it's a mechanism to build value in homes. But at the same time, you have all these other categories of commercial real estate that exist that provide opportunities, industrial, retail, commercial office, multifamily, mixed use projects. And, uh, you know, with everything that's going on in cities these days, you know, all of those sectors over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years have had their day in the sun. And so they have presented outstanding opportunities to build wealth by investing, you know, individually in properties or through syndications or partnerships in properties that appreciate over the long term. Well said, well said. And, you know, kind of shifting gears to Block Global Group, your company, we see that your body of work is in commercial real estate and it's geared towards revitalizing an economic development. Could you take us through what you do a little bit at Block Global Group? Yeah. So the core service that we provide here is really feed development services. And that's kind of where, you know, where we started our firm. We develop, and when I say fee development, we develop projects on behalf of clients for professional services fee. We also invest in projects for our own account, but a large part of the work that we do is still on behalf of clients. And essentially that's working, for example, with a landowner who says, hey, I own a piece of land. I think it has the potential to be redeveloped, but I'm not a developer. You know, they would hire our firm and we would work with them from concept to project closure. And at the end of the project, hand them the key. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the first projects we did when we started our firm was... Uh, a big high-end condominium project. The investors were based in the Netherlands and they had a U.S. subsidiary, but they were doing that specific project in Birmingham, Alabama. And so we were based in Birmingham. So they hired us as their fee developer because you know their U.S. office was in Florida. Their core headquarters was in, in The Hague in the Netherlands. So we helped them on the conceptual side by hiring three architectural firms to put together design concepts we selected a concept and then we worked with them to bid those uh, job specifications and construction drawings out to construction companies, selected a contractor based on pricing. And then we actually managed the delivery of that project over the construction period on behalf of the client. And so it's a turnkey development solution. And so we took that model and we began to use it for not only private sector clients, but public sector clients as well. Because as you know, over the past couple of years, cities have been actively involved in redevelopment and public-private partnerships and having interest in projects. And so we have taken our fee development model and adapted it you know, for public sector clients as well. And so that's one of the primary ways that we deliver the services that we we provide as the firm. That's awesome. So say I wanted to develop a property, for example, and I didn't want to play a role in the development process. I would, I would engage a firm like yours to pretty much develop the property on my behalf. That's correct. That's correct. And so, so we can do a turnkey job or we can, you know, kind of work like an often a la carte menu. For example, if you already have hired the architect and they have done the design work, then we can step in at any stage of the process because our work delivers, you know, value at every stage. 
one of the things we often try to remind people, especially on the development side, is you know most of the risk in a development project is during project the delivery phase, you know the building and construction phase, and that's where you have to be you know on time, on budget. All the uh, contractors and subcontractors have to deliver exactly what they propose to deliver, so that the project's completed on time and within budget, and to the owner's expectations. And so, you know, that's the most critical part of the development process, and that's where we, you know, earn our bread and butter. That's awesome. I know that could be a pain for a lot of people. So, I believe you do a lot with like the historic neighborhoods. Is that accurate? Do you, do you work yeah. like in revitalizing historic communities? Right, we do. So we have been involved in uh, revitalization of communities here in Birmingham and other cities throughout the Southeast. You know, over the past 20 years, there has been a re-urbanization trend going on in cities around the country. And so a lot of times that re-urbanization involves revitalizing older historic, you know, neighborhoods or neighborhoods that, you know, are socioeconomically diverse. And so we have spent a lot of time working with neighborhood associations and community-based stakeholders and cities in order to work with them and help them define just how those communities need to be revitalized. You know, these days when you work in cities, you have to deal with not only the public sector and everything that entails, you know, the politicians planning and zoning, but you also have to deal with neighborhood associations and then historic districts and commissions if the property that you're developing is located in a historic district. And so there's a way to engage all of those groups proactively, especially neighborhood associations. And typically neighborhood associations are concerned about preserving the character and quality of the community. And so a developer from DC, you know, finds it hard to come to a city like Atlanta and go into the historic fourth ward and just do a project that does not mesh with the charm, the culture, the history of the historic fourth ward. And so there's a learning process that that's required for developers as they approach and deal with the people that live in those historic neighborhoods. And so we help our clients kind of navigate that because we've been doing that for years. We Years ago, I actually did a public sector stint with the city of Birmingham, one of the former mayors. And I managed all the city's capital projects and served as the mayor's financial advisor and economic advisor during this period of time that I was there. And I had the chance to, you know, structure public-private partnerships for the city, structure concession agreements, and also structure agreements between the city and neighborhood, uh, you know, neighborhoods during that period of time. So, you know, we kind of bring all that perspective to the table in the work that we do in cities. Nice, nice. We're we're about to get into the tax incentives in just a second um, of doing some of these historic, you know, historic credits and all of that. Right. But you know, if private investors, you know, a lot of our listeners will either go out and execute on ideas based on, you know, they'll do it themselves. To, they'll go and find neighborhoods. They'll go and find, you know, opportunities where they can take advantage of it. And other listeners, they just want to invest. They don't want to do go through all that. They just want to put the money up. Right. You know, what role would do private investors play in this revitalization process? So at the end of the day, private investors really play the most critical role because, you know, what most developers don't tell you is that the developer isn't the guy that puts up most of the money. You know, most of the money is put up by investor partners, whether you syndicate it or whether you're doing big institutional deals. The bulk of the money generally comes from a pool of investors. 
uh, sometimes small pools, sometimes really large pools. And so what investors do is they buy off on the visions that the developers promote, right? The developers bring a concept and idea to the table. And so investors fuel all of the revitalization or most of the revitalization that's going on in cities because they are the funds behind the respective developers who show up in any any community. Makes a lot of sense. I got two questions, two or three questions along those lines. So if I'm an investor and I want to get involved in one of these things, is there any areas you think, any specific markets or sub-markets or areas of the country in general that have more of these types of opportunities than others? So we, we did research years ago and we began to track migratory patterns in the country. And we recognize that, you know, over the last really 10 to 15 years, people have been migrating out of the northeastern states, out of the Midwest, and to some extent, some sections of the West Coast, to the Sunbelt states, to Texas, you know, Austin, Houston, Dallas, uh, to Tennessee, to Nashville, to uh, Georgia, Atlanta, and Augusta, to Phoenix, you know, for example. So the Sunbelt states over the past 10 years have seen a dramatic increase in population due to migration from other places around the country. So we focus our efforts on those places that people are going because that's what creates demand for the things that we do. And so for investors interested in, you know, participating in investment deals, it would, our perspective is, you know, Sunbelt states are really places where people continue to move. You know, after the last recession, the great recession, as people are calling it, you know, as the markets rebounded, Central Florida became a you know pretty significant place for migration. You know, the Tampa Bay area, the Orlando area, you know, the middle-sized cities, because prior to the last recession, you know, the gateway markets were hot. You know, New York was hot. Miami was hot. You know, San Francisco was hot. And so as time has passed, you know, people have been moving to those places. So I know it's a long way of answering the question, but, you know, we see opportunities in, in markets in the Sunbelt states. Makes a lot of sense based on what's going on in the economy and everything today. And the, right. to, to your point, the migration patterns. Um, if I'm a private investor and I, I'm not going to go and look for an area myself, but I'm going to go invest with one of these developers. And there might not be a good answer to this question, but is there anything I should look out for that says, hey, look, you know, this is a good deal or anything I should watch out for and say, hey, look, this is a bad deal. Maybe I shouldn't invest in it. I think the most important thing these days is just consideration of where the market is at any given point in time. And I'll say where the market is, I mean, the, the overall economy, you know, because, you know, we're, we're going through this kind of COVID-induced pandemic, which has impacted certain sectors of the commercial real estate market. And um, so there are various determinations that you have to make. For example, this year, people have been fleeing you know, retail investments. They have been fleeing investments in commercial office because nobody's in commercial office building. You know, everybody's working from home. You know, retail was being impacted by the Internet prior to COVID. And now that, the, you know, we've gone into these quarantines and lockdowns, you know, all those cool things that made cities hum, you know, the bars, the restaurants, the shops, the retail are now operating at limited capacity if operating at all. So you have to examine first the broader market to make sure that you are investing in a sector that still has growth potential. And then once you look at that sector, then you can, you know, further define 
to specifically which markets you you want to invest in. You know, Nashville, for example, is an interesting market. It's diversified. You know, HCA is a big hospital corporation that's there, but they have over HCA's career, they have spun off, you know, probably like four or five hundred different medical related technology companies and operating companies. You have the music industry that's there. You still have advanced manufacturing that's there. Nissan North America is there. So you've got automotive. And so look at cities to find cities that have diverse economies and diverse drivers of those economies. And a lot of times those are places that fare well during downturns in the marketplace. So and do very well when the market is growing. So, so it's pretty much investing in, in this type of stuff is basically following the fundamental principles of real estate investing. You need to know your market, where it's at in the cycle, what the supply and demand factors are, yeah. and what asset classes are going to be viable at any given point in time. So kind of switching gears a little bit, we are the Real Estate CPA podcast. We do have to talk about taxes a little bit. Mm. And I do know that there are some credits and there are some opportunities for tax savings through government programs when uh, revitalizing historic buildings or affordable housing. Would you be able to speak to any of those? Yeah. So tax credits and tax incentives have been a big item that's fueled a lot of revitalization uh, you know, in cities throughout the Southeast, primarily because they make deals pencil. Essentially, they provide you with either a lower cost of capital or they provide you with tax incentives that make an investment that otherwise would not be attractive, attractive. And so as a developer, we looked for tax incentives, for example, that would help us write down the cost of a development. For example, if you use historic tax credits on the historic rehab, those dollars that you get are essentially grant dollars that allow you to write down the cost of the property or write down the cost of redevelopment in the property. And so what it does is because those investors, again, step up, they get tax incentives, but those tax incentives have a real economic benefit to the project. You know, over the past couple of years, you have seen the proliferation of new market tax credits, which is a tool that the Treasury Department developed years ago to support redevelopment and revitalization in cities. You've always had historic tax credits. You have on the multifamily side, you have low-income housing tax credits that a lot of developers sell those credits to investors in the marketplace in order to provide equity to support the development of mixed income housing. And then most recently, you've had the creation of opportunity zones and then opportunity zone funds which have their unique kind of tax credit structure as well. And so the use of tax credits uh, has gone a long way to make projects viable, to make projects pencil, as we say, in markets throughout the country. The tax credits can definitely incentivize action, which I think is sometimes why the government puts them in place. They see needs in the economy that need to be done. They don't want to do it through the public sector. So they go and say, we're going to do this through the private sector. And the way we're going to do that is through these incentive credits that they they do offer, which is great. Um, One question that we have, you know, one thing we know is popular right now is the Opportunity Zone program that has, you know, there's many different places across the country that are zoned as opportunity zones. Have you done a lot of work in those? Have you seen a lot of activity taking place in those opportunity zones? Yeah, we, we've seen a fair amount of activity in opportunity zones. We have not done any opportunity zone funded projects, but we have worked within opportunity zones and we have seen uh, large scale projects benefit from uh, the opportunity zone program. You know, that when, when the treasury set up opportunity zones, it was fairly easy to actually set up a fund 
you know, any individual could set up an opportunity zone fund. So you had every everyone from uh, pools of individuals to high net worth individuals setting up opportunity zone funds, just a pool of money that they wanted to allocate and invest in projects in those designated areas to the big institutional investors. You know, the big investment banks set up several hundred million dollar opportunity zone funds and directed those dollars into communities to pursue projects that generated the kind of returns that uh, you know they and their investor partners wanted to derive. And so it's been a big driver of redevelopment in communities. For sure. Is there any particular reason why you haven't done any? Is it just that it has, there hasn't been the opportunity, no pun intended, to do anything in the opportunity <laughs> zones? Or is it just, is there is there other factors making you say, you know what, well, we're not going to take on these types of projects? No. So at the end of the day, Opportunity zone funds are looking for profitable projects. You know, a lot of people have that. You have the whole concept of opportunity zones twisted. You know, they think that just because you can get a tax break, you'll go and put your money in any kind of projects, you know, within an opportunity zone. Well, that's not the case. What you're essentially doing with an opportunity zone fund is you're taking capital gains that you already have achieved and you're reinvesting those. And if you hold them over a seven to 10 year period, you essentially skirt paying taxes on those gains and the additional gains that you make. So opportunity zone funds are looking for profitable projects in within opportunity zones. And so the zones were drawn in areas that have been challenging to develop and, you know, by, by design. And so you have to find the right project to pair the opportunity zone capital with so that it makes sense for those investors and it, and it actually achieves, you know, the return objectives that they have. And so, so it's just a matter of pairing up. And so it's a little more challenging than most people think to find the right project to match that opportunity zone investor who's coming to the table. Yeah, because I, yeah, I got to imagine because just thinking through it, just sitting here on this podcast right now, you know, think of if the opportunity zones there's not that much opportunity for growth in there yet because they need to be redeveloped. And now exactly. investors looking for yield essentially yeah. on their money. And I almost feel like there needs to be a higher level like planning going on. Like, okay, it's not just, we're not going to just redevelop these buildings. Right. We're going to redevelop these businesses and draw all these companies to this area. And then the buildings that we're going to redevelop, for example, there then they're going to be profitable because there's going to be an inflow of people to the market, the job market, yeah. because of the companies coming there. And I feel like if you're right. doing it on a project by project basis, it's very challenging to get that level of coordination. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. What there needs to be is really a seeding of those markets, you know, those designated opportunity zones, because you're right. I mean, there has to be basic fundamentals that exist in the marketplace in order for, you know, the next projects to work. So the treasurer should actually come up with some kind of pioneering fund, you know, that, that provides significant benefits to people who want to take greater risk. You know, for example, like land banking risk, where you go in and you buy properties, but you have to put together master plans for the redevelopment of those properties. And then you assume entitlement risk associated with those. So, there's probably a step before the funds come in. You know, you we in, in our business, we talk about pioneers and settlers. You know, nobody wants to be the pioneer. We always say the pioneer is the guy who gets the arrows in their back, right? Yeah, yeah. So you want to be settlers. You know, you want to be the second guy in who takes advantage of the spade work that the pioneers have done. And so 
opportunity zone funds, a lot of times really are settlers, you know, and they take the settler role. And so in these opportunity zones, if that seed work has not been done, it makes it challenging for a fund to come in and find, you know, profitable projects. That makes a ton of sense. I guess the government will see how this opportunity zone program ultimately plays out and we'll see what comes in the future. Shifting gears just a little bit, you know, one of the things that uh, we wanted to ask about was smart grid and smart city infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Is that something you're involved in? And if so, what, what is that? And what does that do for, for real estate investors? You know, s- smart cities, I guess the best way I define it is embedding technology within the infrastructures that serve as the backbone of cities. For example, electric utility companies, you know, over the years recently, electric utility companies have been using their right-of-way overhead and underground to run fiber optic cables. And those fiber optic cables provide a piece of infrastructure that telecommunications companies can log into, you know, where they can put, you know, traffic cameras at intersections. They can put neighborhood watch cameras all throughout neighborhoods. They can put LED lighting in the, you know, the city's streetlight fixtures to lower the city's cost and lower electricity usage. They can embed technologies within transportation infrastructure in order to make the traffic flow better and make people's experience getting in and out of town easier. And so smart city technologies take into account just embedding technology within the infrastructure that exists in cities. And then on the real estate side, you have smart buildings that are being developed where you have sensors and monitors and buildings. You know, the next generation of buildings not only will be built from, you know, sustainable and renewable materials, on the inside of those buildings, you'll have sensors and monitors. For example, they'll monitor your temperature in a room and you set your program to say, I want my room to stay at, you know, 68 degrees. And so you can do that on a room by room basis. So your respective office maintains that, uh, you know, telecommunications companies are pushing data to people, for example, as you walk up and down the streets, the installation of 5G allows them to track your cell phone locations. And as you walk by buildings, if it's a smart building, it will prompt you and tell you what's in the building, who's in the building. If there are any businesses or retailers in the building that tie to any interest that you have. And so, you know, this whole smart city concept is all about bedding technology into the urban experience. Some people have concerns about it from a privacy standpoint, because in these smart environments, you literally will be tracked, you know, every place you go, what you do, where you interact. And at the end of the day, some people, you know, are comfortable with that. You know, most younger people are comfortable with that. Older people are, you know, probably a little more wise and less comfortable with their whereabouts and their purchase history and, you know, all those things being uh, available to the general public. Yeah, you know, definitely would be a little concerned with that as well. I just do want to give a call out here for everybody who's listening to the podcast. You know, it sounds like some of these smart technologies that could be implemented into a building perhaps could help you qualify for some of these tax credits, some of these energy efficiency right. tax credits you see, like the the Section 179D or the 45L, uh, perhaps energy tax credit, which I believe... Um, were just made permanent or extended by the CARES Act. And we do have an episode on that for everybody who wants to go check it out, episode 128. We do have an episode on those tax credits. I just thought that was an interesting tie-in to kind of what you were talking about and some of the opportunities. Oh, yeah, you're right. I mean, the programs that you just cited, 
provide opportunities for investors to use like their tax allocations, like property tax payments as a way to fund those upgrades on buildings. Like you can come in and put smart HVAC systems in, you know, you can do solar roofing, you can do all kinds of mechanical upgrades that using smart technology. And then some of those programs then allow you to pay for those upgrades over a period of time by just allocating a portion of those payments within your property taxes. So essentially what that does is it lowers your upfront cost and makes you know development projects viable or more viable or more profitable because you don't have to incur those big expenditures up front. There are mechanisms that can be put in place for you to you know pay those expenditures over time. So you know tax incentives, tax credits, you know utilization of the tax codes has been a significant driver in fueling the redevelopment of uh, you know real estate and the revitalization of cities. Absolutely, absolutely. So we do have a like I mentioned earlier, we do have a diverse set of clients and listeners of this podcast who are all over the map in terms of what types of assets they invest in, what types of projects they take on. You know, how would an investor maybe listening to this podcast know, hey, look, you know, I want to go speak to Block Global about perhaps one of my projects. Who do you work with, I guess, is what I'm asking. And what would be the process to getting started to see if one of these, maybe these uh, fee development projects are viable for someone? Right. So the best way to reach us is uh, through LinkedIn. You know, our company has a LinkedIn site. And then, uh, you know, the principals, I have a, a LinkedIn site as well. And as it relates to projects and getting involved in projects, you know, typically most developers work with groups of investor partners. And every developer is always interested in further expanding the universe of investor partners who are interested in the things that they're doing. So what we do oftentimes is direct people to the like the development page on our website, which describes some of the projects that we're working on. We're in the process of revising the site so that we can put prospective projects on the site. You know, for example, we really like, um, you know, some of the crowdfunding sites and the way that they present prospective projects. I think they've come a long way over the last couple of years in really defining really cool profiles of projects and then defining how investors can participate. So what we have traditionally done is just worked with similar teams, you know, same team same pools of investors over the years, but we're in the process of working to expand our reach and open up the universe of what we do to other investors. And so we're going to do that through our website by making enhancements and doing property profiles. So when we begin a project or have the concept for a project, we'll post it on the website and invite people to take a look and then follow up with us if they have, if they have further interest. What was that website called again? Well, our, our website is uh, blockglobal.com and the company LinkedIn page can be sourced by, you know, just searching Block Global on LinkedIn and mine is Herschel Hamilton. You can find that on, on LinkedIn as well. So basically, you know, it's, it sounds like the one aspect, again, just revisiting it is one aspect of the business is, okay, you guys are developers, you're going to go out and develop a project, you're raising capital. That's one of those opportunity for investors. Um, the other side was like the fee construction, right. the fee development. Like, how would someone know if if that's something that they would want to work with you on or not? Like, is there a certain size project you guys take on or? Yeah, so, so we typically work on projects at the $5 million level or greater. And so if individuals are interested in having conversations with us to talk about specific projects they may have in mind, 
then they can also reach out through that same channel. They can reach out through uh, LinkedIn and I'll provide you guys with my email and contact information. And if anybody, you know, through you guys wants to, to reach out to me specifically, they can. But, you know, for example, if one of your listeners owns a site that they believe is viable for a certain type of development and they don't have development expertise, you know, that's the perfect scenario for a conversation with us around, you know, looking at that parcel making some early determinations about what can be developed there and then possibly structuring, uh, you know, putting agreements in place where we work to help them develop those parcels, you know, on a turnkey basis, as I described earlier, or, you know, on an a la carte basis as well. So, you know, that's a lot of times, I guess over the past couple of years, we've been around for like 17 years and a lot of the work that we get is word of mouth. We have recently decided that, you know, we want to, you know, engage and reach out more. Uh, we get a lot of work from word of mouth just because, you know, we've been around for a while and uh, we've succeeded on a number of projects and that drives new clients. But we do want to, you know, make the opportunity available to other people. And as we build our firm and add additional human resources in the firm, you know, our goal is to expand the opportunities for them to work on projects as well. And so, uh, it's been a, you know, it's, it's, it's really been a really interesting journey. And and the thing that we really enjoy is helping other people realize visions that they have, because there's nothing more frustrating than having a vision that you can't execute on, you know, that you know it's the right thing, know it's the right time, but you just don't have the expertise to do it. And so it's really cool at the end of the day to stand back with somebody and look at something that they envision come to life. It's a beautiful thing. And so we we enjoy it. So that's awesome. Kind of like, you know, someone has a vision, you help them put their vision in place. And I just have one more question before we wrap this up for today. You know, so say I was an investor and I wanted to invest along with you. Do you only accept accredited investors at this point? Or do you work with non-accredited investors as well? Yeah, it's primarily accredited investors. Um, we have not done large scale syndications. Uh, we always like to work with, you know, smaller groups as opposed to larger ones. And we like to get to know the partners who become our investor partners for, for a couple of reasons. One, alignment is really important. As an investor partner, you have to make sure that you are aligned not only with your profits motive, because that's why investors at the table, they have a profits motive, but also from a value perspective. You know, we tell people all the time, you know, the, the challenge in development is what do you do when something goes sideways? What's your temperament? What's your way? You know, how do you cope with working out of, challenging projects. And so we want to make sure that we have investor partners who are with us on the vision, who are with us on the profits motives, but at the same time, align to our ways of working through challenges on projects, you know, communication, you know, over communicate as opposed to, you know, under communicate, proactively deal with challenges that come up. You know, we have a client who tells us, I want the bad news first. You said, if it's good news, take the time to tell me, you know, you can tell me three days from now if it's good news, but the bad news I want upfront. So we know that we put a plan in place to deal with it. And so you just have to make sure, you know, we always try to strive to make sure that we have to have the right alignment in the investor partners that we work with to make sure that, you know, not only is it money and profits, but it's kind of a value-based system of how do we manage through challenges and then, uh, you know, how committed are we to deals and to the people we borrow money from and things of that nature as well? 
very wise words. Uh, a lot of people, I see a lot of syndicate money, people just taking anything that gets thrown at them, not really taking the time to evaluate whether or not the investor's goals and, and temperament and all that are aligned exactly. um, with that of the project. So, you know, really good to hear that, that that's something you, you take a large focus on. So we're going to go ahead and drop blockglobal.com as well as the other information down into the show notes below. Um, I guess the final thing is, do you, do you want to give out your email address here on the podcast or do you prefer to not have that posted out there? Yes. So you guys will have it. And, uh, you know, to the extent anybody reaches out to you who wants to contact us, they can. All right. So we'll have that. And uh, thank you again for coming on the show today. Really, really enjoyed the conversation. Looking forward to putting it out My there. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.